folks, and I hope you participate in this great uh, creative program. You'll hear more about it in the next service. Uh, in this service, Brother John is talking about it, and in the next, uh, Freeman will. And it's kind of a fun thing to do, especially with family members. And as Wes said in the video, if you're unable to pick up an envelope in one of the services, you can do so right in the lobby at the Envision booth. It's a fun thing. And then on October 27th, we'll rejoice together in hearing wonderful stories about what people did with their one, two, or five dollars. And then we'll just see how God has seen fit to multiply it. We're doing really well with regard to the Envision program. Very, very generous gifts have come in. And so I think... Now, our administrator is here, so i got to get my numbers right. I think there's five and a half million dollars. Five, five, four. So, you know, what's point, let's see, point four, is, that's $100,000? Yeah. What's $100,000? So that's pretty good if you think about it. It's been fairly painless. Nobody has been threatened or anything like that. And God has just moved in the lives of our wonderful people to contribute to the program, which is an investment primarily in the lives of our students, the next generation, as we gray and white-haired guys have to move out of the way. So that's, that's just a great and exciting program. We'll see what God does to provide the rest. Well, folks, we are in Amos today, and I'm going to um, have to do chapters 5 and 6 because I messed up last week. I was supposed to do one of the chapters, and I got... Uh, interested instead in talking about our recent Israel trip. So now I have to make up for ground and try to cover two chapters, which is impossible, but we'll, we'll highlight it just a little bit. And then, Lord willing, Brother Chuck's going to take us further in Amos chapter 7 last week. You know, this is not a fun book. Perhaps you've experienced that already. It's heavy. It's about judgment. We like to talk about the grace and the mercy, the patience, the compassion of God, all of which are realities, but we cannot ignore the fact that he's intensely, uncompromisingly just, and therefore he must judge sin. So the message he gave to Amos was one of impending judgment first for the nations surrounding Israel, but then Israel, because Israel is not only not immune from judgment, Maybe even she is going to be more subject to it than anybody else because there's a biblical principle to whom much is given, much is required. And Israel, Jewish people, are perhaps the most spiritually privileged people group on earth. And yet, as a general rule, we've squandered those privileges and God is justified in judging us for it. And therefore, you'll read more about it here now if, if you track with me. Amos chapter 5. Hear this word, which I take up for you. Look what it says. As a dirge, O house of Israel. A dirge is a song, but not a pleasant one. It's a musical lament. You sing it at a funeral. When someone has died, you sing a dirge. But Israel is still alive. But Amos is treating her as if she's spiritually dead. Welcome to your own service, funeral service, Amos is essentially saying. I'll sing a dirge over you. Here it is. She's fallen. She won't rise again. The virgin, Israel, she lies neglected on her land. There's none to raise her up. 
Israel is depicted as a very vulnerable young gal, uh, subject to predators, and no one is there to come to her assistance. That's essentially the picture we're being given here. Now, I want to pause here and call your attention to something that has given rise to a theology that I think is dangerous. See where it says she's fallen, she won't rise again? There's none to raise her up. Based on this, some have concluded God is through with Israel. Israel's through with God, therefore God's through with Israel. Israel, in so many words, has turned her back on God, forsaken him, worshipped idols. Uh, God has his limits of patience, and uh, Israel's sin has exceeded God's patience and mercy. Therefore, he has forsaken Israel and moved on to another people group who he thinks perhaps will do better, namely the church. And so the church, some say, is the new Israel. God is through with the old Israel. He no longer has a plan for descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's through with the Jews because largely the Jews have turned their back on him, their own Messiah. It's called replacement theology. Or if you really want to impress people, you can use this term, supersessionism. That's what it's called. God's plan for Israel, in other words, has been superseded by the church. Israel's been replaced. Now, the problem with it is that it's absolutely contrary to Scripture. For instance, we see New Testament principles like this, where sin, Israel's or anybody's, abounds, grace superabounds. You cannot out-sin the grace of God. Furthermore, we read, though we be unfaithful, he remains faithful. So if there came a point in Israel's history when her unfaithfulness so compromised God's faithfulness that he gave up on her, you're in trouble. Because if there came a point when God had enough with Israel, when is he going to have enough with you? You're part of the church who some say is now the new Israel. But the so-called new Israel has a very spotted history just as Israel does as well. So what's at stake here is the very character of God. Does he make promises that he cannot keep? Once God tested Moses in the wilderness wanderings. He said, I've had it with Israel. I'm going to uh, be finished with her and raise up a new nation through you as its leader. That was a very tempting offer to give to Moses. Moses said, oh, no, oh, God, don't do this. For if you do it, onlookers will say, look, you didn't keep your word. You promised Israel a place, a land of promise, and you did not deliver on your promise. And Moses passed the test. So if you hold to replacement theology, you are impugning the very character of God. But based on this verse and many other um, wrongly handled passages, some have embraced replacement theology. Now, I want to show you just based on the internal evidence that can't be right. Would you turn with me to Amos chapter 9? Just a brief passage in Amos 9. Amos 5, Amos 9, same authorship. If it's inspired scripture... 
chapter 5 would not be contrary to chapter 9, which I want to read to you now. Verses 13 to 15. See if you can follow along. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman will overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed, when the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills will be dissolved. Also, I will restore the captivity of my people Israel. Now, folks, those are not my words. Those are God's words. So God is not speaking of a replacement theology. He's speaking of what we could call a restoration theology. His judgment on Israel is well deserved. But it is not to destroy her, it's to correct and redeem her, the evidence of which is right there. I will restore the captivity of my people Israel, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. If you've been to Israel, you can see that's already largely been fulfilled. There have been many cities there in Israel which over the years have gone unattended to, and now they're thriving communities. It doesn't look as if, if you go to Israel, God is through with the Jewish people at all. It says, and they will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them, and they will also plant vineyards and drink their wine. Now, I'm not encouraging that. Uh, I'm just sharing what the scriptures say. If you go to Israel today, you'll see in certain places very, very um, fruitful vineyards that have been planted in the land. In fact, it's thought by many that they can get back to the original kind of grapes and wine that existed in biblical times. I bring this up so as to say, (laughs) over the years, there were no vineyards. They just went uh, away through invading nations and weather conditions and all the rest. And in fulfillment of Amos 9, you can go through the land now. In fact, uh, Israel's wine-producing industry now is winning international awards. Again, I'm not encouraging these, these things. I'm just trying to tell you what we're reading in Scripture. So it's a misinterpretation of Amos 5 to think God is through with Israel and the Jewish people. Go there today and tell me if it looks like God has uh, forsaken Israel. And then it says, I'll make gardens and eat their, uh, they will make gardens and eat their fruit. There are actual um, crops and trees growing in what's called the Negev Desert. When Israel came into the land in 19... 19- as a reconstituted nation in 1949, or was it 48? 48? Yeah, I confuse that with 49 because that's my birth year. And that's just as important to me. So in 48, when they came into the land, 60% of it was desert. And they've made things grow in the desert. You can go to the Negev Desert and see rows of what's called date palms, big tall trees, dates grow on them, through something called drip irrigation. And then it says, I will also plant them on their land. Folks, that happened in May of 1948. Israel was out of the land as a nation for 2,000 years. Historically, it's never happened before that a, a people group outside of their land for that long has been reconstituted as a people and are back in the land. 
It says, I will plant them on their land, and they will not again be rooted out from their land, which I have given them, says the Lord God. Now, I've been accused by a few of being too political when I get into these discussions. It's just not accurate. Uh, This is a biblical declaration right here, and nothing to do with politics. God said, it's my land, I'll give it to whoever I want to, and I chose to give it to the Jews. Now, you can argue in the United Nations and in other governmental assemblies all you want, but I'm telling you right now, I gave title deed to the land to the Jews. Now, I hear your objection. You say the Jews don't deserve it. And God says, of course they don't. Nobody is saying that they do. Do you deserve your salvation? Can you see the parallel? The title deed to your place of promise, which we call heaven, how did you come to be in possession of it? By virtue? Merit? Amazing grace. That's it. As with Israel, as with the Jews, so with the church. So if you think God has replaced the Jews, you've cut your own throat because you're next. But he hasn't replaced them. And one of the reasons he hasn't replaced them and still has an ongoing plan for them is to give us assurance of our eternal security. If you are in Christ Jesus... You will not lose your salvation. You deserve to. I got it. So do I. Just as Israel deserved to forfeit the benefits of her covenant with God. But as Israel has not been replaced, neither will, neither will the church. So how could Amos be saying one thing in chapter 5, another thing in chapter 9? In fact, he's not saying in chapter 5 that God's through with Israel. You know what he's saying? God's going to judge a part of Israel for a spell. In fact, I'll show you in a second, he's really only speaking about the 10 northern tribes, not all of Israel. The 10 northern tribes were called Israel. The two southern tribes, Judah. It was a divided kingdom. This is a judgment on the 10 northern tribes, and it it befell Israel historically in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians invaded the land and imposed upon Israel All those things God said would come their way to discipline them. Okay, so back to Amos chapter 5, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, the city which goes forth a thousand strong will have a hundred left. If you've been in the military, you go out with a thousand soldiers and you only bring back a hundred. That's a devastating loss. And the one which goes forth a hundred strong will only have ten left. You see, that's God talking about uh, what will happen when the Assyrians impose themselves upon Israel. But notice verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, seek me that you may live. Embedded in all of this uh, declaration of judgment is an opportunity for personal repentance. God is a God of grace. He always stands ready to hear from us when we turn from our sin and back to him. This is an appeal for personal repentance, even in the midst of impending judgment. Then it says in verse 5, don't resort to three places. Don't resort to Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba. God is saying, if you repent and come to me to worship, don't worship me in either of these three places. Why? These are three significant places in Israel's ancient history. Bethel, Just north of Jerusalem is where Jacob had this marvelous vision of a ladder and angels ascending and descending. 
Gilgal is where the Israelites, after their 400 plus years of enslavement, entered the promised land. Beersheba in the south, Beersheba is where the patriarchs did a bunch of stuff. Would make sense for Israel to say, oh, God, you're right. We've been wrong. We want to get right with you, and we'll come worship you at one of these places. God says, don't do it. I want to ask you, do you have any idea why God says, nope, not Gilgal, not Bethel, not Beersheba? Any idea why God says, I won't accept your worship there? What do you think, uh, Rick? So this is a good point. Uh, they would worship the place because those are places of significance and they wouldn't worship God. That's a very excellent point. Good. Not bad. Uh, what do you... Oh, now this is a good idea. Gail, uh, Gail is saying, well, maybe God wants them to have like a new beginning, repentance, and this, you know, these places tie Israel to, to her past. That's a good thought. Good thought. Yes, ma'am. This is another good point. They, they, and we know this to be true. They worship pagan gods in those very places. They set up shrines to idols. That's true. Good. Yes, what do you think, Ryan? Now, that's another good thought. Don't make a big deal about going to these places. You can worship me right in your home. All of these are right. What do you think, Al? Okay, Alan is saying, no, he's going to judge and destroy him, and therefore he doesn't want him there. All good thoughts. Yes, Trish. And you're right. The 10 northern tribes, some of them came from the north. These are all in the south. And they came to the south to set up worship centers there. They were in part pagan centers of worship. Absolutely. But not entirely. That doesn't explain it all. You, you, you're, everything you've said, I think, is accurate, but it's not the real reason. You didn't get it yet. So I'll tell you. Where did God? <laughs> should, that would be a cool way to do it. Oh, I should do that. That's So... So where did God establish the capital of Israel? Where did he establish the temple? Um, what city was Jesus uh, crucified in? Uh, buried in, resurrected in, ascended from. Where is he returning? Jerusalem is the place of worship. That's what God said. Why? I have no idea. But that's what he said. Here's the point. Look at folks, he's saying, if you're truly repentant, then come to me, sure, my way, not your way. People in their arrogance would say, God, you're right, you're right, you know, we've stepped on your toes, we want to make it right with you, so we'll hang out with you at Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba. Well, all along God said, no. If you want to be right with me, you will assemble in worship at a place called Jerusalem. Here's the application. <clears throat> Almighty God uh, need not have provided any way for us to be right with him, but he did through Jesus. What about if someone says, well, you come to God through Jesus. I come through Buddha, Mohammed, Moses, or my own good deeds. I come through my religious system. You come through Jesus. I come through some, the audacity of the person. 
to say to God, you're right, I'm on the outs with you, but I want to choose my own means of access to you, not Jesus. You know, God's very narrow about how to rightly approach him. He said, none of these places will do. Jerusalem is my city. And he also says, no other savior will do. Jesus is my son. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father but by me. It can't be Bethel, Gilgal, or Beersheba. There's no other place to be made right with God. It has to be through Jesus. Acts says there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Very narrow. Remember years ago, I was visiting a brother-in-law of mine in New York, Jewish guy, and uh, he said, I want to ask you a question. Do you mean to tell me, Jewish people, your people, he said it like that, he looked at me, your own people, do you mean to tell me, <clears throat> uh, Jewish people who've been very dedicated, devoted, passionate about their traditions, do you mean to tell me, merely because they don't accept your Jesus, they're going to hell? To which I said, yes. That's the answer. He went ballistic. How dare you say that? I said, I'm not. I'm just repeating what God said. I wouldn't have the audacity to, to make that claim, but God could restrict the means by which we can be right with him in any way he wants. And he said, it's through my son and none other. I said, you're angry as could be, but you're angry at the wrong person. I'm just the messenger. You're going to have to take this up with God. Argue your case with him. And so you see here, God is saying, if you're truly repentant, you will come to me where I want you to in my way, not your own way. By the way, of course, you know the American embassy has been moved now to Jerusalem. Again, whatever your political position is, that was a good decision. Because it's simply one that recognizes that that's the capital of Israel. And God recognized Jerusalem from, for 3,000 years as the capital of, of Israel. So um, anyway, all right, let's move on before I do get political. So um, see verse 6, seek the Lord that you may live another opportunity for personal repentance. No matter what's going on on the national or international scale, the individual citizen can still be made right with God. I'll tell you why this is important. Um, I try to carve out a boundary between what I can do and what I can't do in all areas of life because I find that God gives us no grace to deal with things we can't do a thing about. That's called worry. There's just certain things you worry about you can't do a thing about it. Concern is good. That's about things you can, you can affect. Worry is about stuff you, you have no, absolutely no control over whatsoever. So I try to, in my mind, carve out the bond, bound between what I can and cannot do. So governmentally, in our nation, I think most in here would agree we're not going in the best of directions. We're quite concerned. Well, I've set a boundary. There's, just, there's not a whole lot I can do personally. I can pray for our leaders in government. We must. We're commanded to. That's very important. But I really, really can't, uh, I can't change a lot of things that are emanating from government that are very unbiblical, ungodly, and displeasing to God's people. So I try to carve out the bound. But here's what I can do as a citizen, in my case, as an American citizen. 
I can make sure I'm right with Almighty God. The buck stops with me. I could make sure. As someone who knows the Lord Jesus, I'm walking closely with him. I can make sure there's nothing between he and I. As I look to sin, maybe on a national, even international scale, which could be overwhelming, what can you do about it? Well, it starts with the individual citizen. You know, weed your own garden, as someone said. Just make sure you're not watching what you shouldn't watch. You're not drinking what you shouldn't drink. Watch your vocabulary. Watch your recreational pursuits. Watch your value system. Watch how you use your bodies. Make sure your mind is the mind of Christ. There's plenty for us to do. So in verse 6, you have in the midst of terrible degradation on a national scale, still God says, seek the Lord that you may live. Or he will break forth like a fire. Either repentance or judgment is what's in store. Look what he says, O house of Joseph. Now here's how I know he's only speaking to the ten northern tribes. Joseph had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, or Manasseh. Ephraim became, uh, both of them became ones from whom tribes came. Ephraim was the chief northern tribe in the northern kingdom. Ephraim was used as a name to sum up the entire northern kingdom. And here's how I know Amos's statement of judgment is only directed towards the 10 northern tribes at this time, and it was fulfilled in 722 B.C. at the hands of Assyria. And why is God going to judge him? Verse 7, they turn justice into wormwood. In the Bible, justice is referred to as pure as honey. Wormwood is a bitter plant you find throughout the Middle East. The leaders, the governmental leaders in Israel um, distorted the justice system and made it bitter like wormwood. All along, they're missing how powerful God is. Verse 8, he made the Pleiades and Orion. Those are constellations of stars. God made those. Did you know that? You know how he made them? He just said, boom, let there be. That's what he, he didn't labor over it. He just spoke it into existence. Not only that, he changes deep darkness into morning. He darkens day into night. He calls the waters of the sea and pours them out on the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Amos is reminding the governmental leaders of ancient Israel, you're at ease. And you think in your government and in your finances and in your military, everything's cool. Do you know who you're messing with? Do not underestimate the omnipotence of Almighty God. It's he, verse 9, who flashes forth with destruction upon the strong so that destruction comes upon the fortress. I'm going to skip a little bit. Verse 11 talks more about their injustice. It was in their, in their justice and economic system. They impose heavy rent on the poor. They exact a tribute of grain from them. Though you've built houses of well-hewn stone, the government officials were profiting by their positions. They're supposed to be servants of their constituency, but instead they were served by their constituency. They were exploiting them and living lavish lives. Uh, um, forgive me for being negative here, but I think largely, there are notable exceptions, largely, our government officials have become out of touch with the constituency they represent. It's almost like taxation without representation. Here we go again. Um, 
professional politicians who spend most of their time staying in office instead of serving the constituency. To me, it's a government detached from the people who got them there. <clears throat> Folks, your tax dollar and mine is being wasted on foolish efforts to impeach a standing president over a legitimate, publicly um, made available conversation with another sovereign leader uh, of the Ukraine. Is that an impeachable offense? That's sick. We didn't even impeach a standing president who had sex in the Oval Office and we're ready to impeach? It's not going to happen. But I'll tell you what all this impeachment inquiry is going to do. It's going to take up the time of duly appointed government officials who are supposed to be serving us, who got them there, and it's going to get them involved in all this sheer and utter political nonsense. It's a waste of time. It's a government out of touch. The sole purpose is to stay in office. It's a government who doesn't care about the citizenry who got them there. Their, their salaries are taken care of, their homes are taken care of, their speaking engagements and fees are taken care of. All of it's, it's Listen, this is not just about the Jews. It's about the American government as well. That's why this is preserved. Do you think the God who made the constellations is going to let this go on indefinitely? It's a doggone mockery. It's my tax dollar and yours. They have hearings that went on for years about so-called collusion with the Russian government, turning up nothing at, at a taxpayer expense. You know what we could have done with those millions of dollars? That's a government gone awry. We have issues, all kinds of issues, and our government officials, those who initiate this and those who have to respond to it, are absolutely distracted from meeting the needs of, of the constituency. So the needs of the citizenry continue to go unmet while our government spends time with all of these word games and legal ins and outs. And it's when I was a kid, we used to be encouraged by our teachers to be informed of current events, watch the news. Now I discourage people from watching the news. It's the same doggone nonsense. It's not news. It's subjective journalistic bias for crying out loud. Now I'll tell you why I do all this. I don't want to make you sick to your stomach. I just want you to see, uh, don't be all over my people. What, what Amos is writing about ancient Israel applies in modern America just as well. Do you think God who ordained government, he ordained government, government's a great idea. I think it is a holy calling to serve in government. It's a sanctified thing because government is an institution ordained by God. But when ones who are elected to serve in government are not serving as they ought, they're enriching themselves, whoa. Look out. The God who made the constellations can deal with all this, and uh, I think his judgment has already begun in our nation. Well, uh, God goes on to say in verse 16, there's going to be a lot of wailing in the streets. In fact, they'll also call the farmer to mourning and professional mourners to lamentation. You know what that means? There's a Jewish custom still exists today, not as much, but still exists, where if someone dies, 
the next of kin can hire professional mourners show up at the funeral and weep and wail. We're just good at, here's a guy doing all this stuff, doesn't even know the guy in the casket. Why, does it, why do you do it? Because the guy who died might have been a scoundrel. No one's going to weep over his departure. But the family feels bad about it. So you hire professional folks to make it look like, oh, he's really missed. For most people, you can't bury him quick enough. But, you, but anyway, but do you know what this is saying? There'll be so much death and dying when the Assyrians come in 722 B.C. There won't be enough professional mourners to go around. You've got to enlist the services of farmers to come weep for your loved one at the funeral. That's what it's saying there. So it goes on. Now I've got to skip some stuff because I'm just, I'm afraid of Chuck. And, and, and I have to finish this because he's going to do chapter 7 next week. So I got to do this stuff. Oh, look at this. Verse 18. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It'll be darkness, not light. So these were uh, leaders in Israel, religious leaders, who in their religion were thinking, I got it. I'm okay with God. I do the liturgy, I do the ceremonies, I bow when I'm supposed to bow, I stand when I'm supposed to stand. I fast when I'm supposed to fast. I'm really looking forward to the day of the Lord, the time when he returns. And God is saying, you don't know what you're talking about. For you, it's not going to be a good day at all. It's going to be a day of judgment. In your religious arrogance, you think you're ready for the day of the Lord, but you're not. That's what he's essentially saying. In fact, God makes kind of a comical illustration of this verse 19 it's like when a man flees from a lion you see a lion and you run and what happens you run into a bear that's what it says (laughs) or you go home and you lean your hand on the wall of your house and a snake bites you it's kind of a comical sort of a deal saying you can't escape the judgment of god um then this verse 21 look at this i hate I reject your festivals. I don't delight in your solemn assemblies. So listen, a few days ago, we started something called Rosh Hashanah. It's Jewish New Year. but It's not celebratory. It's solemn. It starts a 10-day period, culminates on another day called Yom Kippur. It's happening right now. Day of Atonement. Big day. In between is 10 days. Jewish people think God opens books during this 10-day period. Your name is written in one of them. One book is the book of bad people. Another book, the book of good people. That's real small. And then the other book is kind of neutral. And what you want to do in these 10 days is make sure your name is inscribed in the good book. We wish each other, may your name be inscribed in the book of life. That's what we say to one another. So to make sure your name is inscribed in the book of life during this 10 day period is called the 10 days of awe you want to try to persuade god that you're okay so what do you do you fast you um you give money away you make donations you you do stuff you do a bunch of religious stuff you sing songs you 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 you, you utter prayers so on and so forth you know what god says i hate your festivals I don't delight in your solemn assemblies. Mm. Why does God say that, even about holidays like this? 
as another Jewish prophet said of God, I desire loyalty rather than sacrifice and the knowledge of God rather than burnt offering. So God goes on to say, verse 22, even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. I won't even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. God's not looking for sacrifice. He's not looking for religious hocus pocus, liturgy, ceremony, all the rest. You know what he's looking for? A heart open to him. He's looking for marriage. He's looking for a marital covenant bond. He's looking for a personal relationship. That's what he's looking for. And so, wow, he indicts. Look at this, verse 23. Take away from me the noise of your songs. In Judaism, we have people called a chazan or cantor. They're professional singers. They're unbelievable. They go to school. They study enunciation and oratory and how, and, you know, music and tones and this and drama and positioning and... Oh, my goodness, when you hear a good cantor lead you, it is stirring. And God says, I, he said, take away from me the noise of your songs. Now, when I sing, it's noise because I'm out of tune. But that's not what we're talking about here. Even professional singers who, who are right on tune to God, it's noise. Why? He's not looking for religion devoid of personal relationship with him. He's looking for loyalty. I was, in, I was in England in the military years ago. A friend was a rector of a British church. Rector is like a pastor. His church was built in the 12th century. I and some other military guys would go there Sundays and worship. He was an evangelical in the Church of England. Unusual. There was a beautiful pipe organ in this church. And a man was playing it magnificently. I commented to the rector about it. He said, you may be surprised to know, not only does he not know the Lord, he's an atheist. What? He said, yes, in England, playing the pipe organ in churches like this is an entity unto itself. It's simply an art form. Uh, this man sees no need to come to grips with the God who he's, whose hymns he is playing. What Amos is writing about is not ancient Jewish history. It happens today, even in churches. Do you know some churches hire professional musicians to lead them in worship who don't even know the Lord? Disgraceful to me. Plus, you call the cause the professional musician to stumble. You devalue your worship. You, you essentially say, I'll pay you to, to uh, participate in our worship even though you don't even know the God you're worshiping. So anyway, this is what God says about all that stuff. You know what he wants? Let justice roll down, verse 24, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's what he's looking for. Now I'm going to move on here to chapter uh, 6. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Zion was, Israel's, was Judah's capital in the south and to those who feel secure in the mountain of Samaria. Samaria was capital of northern Israel. Some of us just got back from Samaria, a city, uh, just a few weeks ago. Um, it was built on a hill. The kings of Israel ruled from there. It looked like it was impregnable. But Amos says, oh, no, no, God can get to you there. And the text goes on here. 
Verse 4, they're reclining on beds of ivory, government officials, sprawling on couches, eating lambs from the flock. The average person in ancient Israel ate meat only three times a year, but the government officials are eating lambs from the flock, calves from the midst of the stall. You know what they do? Verse 5, they improvise the sound of the harp and like David have composed songs for themselves. They got lots of time on their hand. They're culture. They're musical. They're artistic. And so they, they, they think we can, we can come up with songs and it'll be as pleasing to God as David's was. But instead, you know what they do? Verse 6, they're drinking wine from sacrificial bowls. A cup of wine won't do it with your spaghetti. It's out of a bowl. You got to use two hands. Not only that, it's not an ordinary bowl. It's a sacrificial bowl. It's a utensil that's supposed to be used for worship in the temple. They're filling it with wine and getting wasted on it. Yet they haven't grieved over the ruin of Joseph. That's the northern kingdom, you see. And then it says in verse 7, they're going to go into exile because of this. Um, Let me skip here. Let's see, because, man, I'm making weird sounds. The horse is going to come in there. The horse is running around. Okay, verse 14. I'm under pressure because Chuck is, he's just mean. I'm telling you. I'm so glad I'm not married to him. Yeah, we agree, we agree on that. That's the only thing we agree on. <laughs> so verse 14, I'm going to raise up a nation against you, O house of Israel. Okay, that was, that's Assyria. Assyria in 722 B.C. They're going to afflict you and stuff like that. So five things that God, God held against Israel, if you sum up. One, injustice in the legal system. Gee, I think we have that. Economic exploitation. Religious hypocrisy, uh, luxurious self-indulgence, and boastful complacency. Those are the five charges God brought through Amos against Israel. And my goodness, that sounds like modern-day America to me. What do we do? Set a bound between what you can and cannot do. Pray for those in positions of governmental leadership, the ones you like, the ones you voted for, and even the ones you didn't. We're commanded to do that. We're supposed to pray for them. We ought to do that. That's something we can do. Second, you can vote intelligently. That's the right we have as American citizens. Very important to do that. Third, you can personally repent so as to make sure you're right with this creator of the stars whose coming may not be too far ahead. You you, you can do those things. And then the fourth thing, tell people about Jesus. That's the only reason we're being left here, it seems to me. Tell people, how are you going to deal with your sin? Do you wish to find forgiveness through Christ Jesus? That's our message. That message can change anybody, even the most distant from Almighty God. That can make that person a different Democrat, a different Republican, a different Independent. Coming to have the mind of Christ is what really changes you. If you really want to impact on the system, be salt and light. Don't be unduly frustrated. And there's nothing we could do. Yes, there is. You can pray and you can proclaim. That's our job as salt and light. Lord Jesus, thank you for the wonderful privileges you've given us to represent you here. May we be more effective at it, more passionate about it, better equipped at it, more fruitful at it. For your glory and for our good. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
God bless you folks. I'm pleased to say Amos 7 next week. <laughs>